Today I'm sat talking to Ed Zorab, who is a filmmaker, writer, director and producer. Just to warm you up, Ed, we're going to play Word Association. Okay. Can you win at Word Association? Is that possible? Um, there are no winners in this game. There are no winners in this game. Okay. Okay. Black and white. Charlie Chaplin. PG rating. PG tips. French. Blue. Blue. Wes Anderson. Yellow and blue colour scheme. Success. Reward. Clooney. Buttery voice. London. Grey. BAFTA. Nominee. Coppola. Tokyo. Spielberg. Aliens. De Niro. Man. Swinton. Art. Uh, Bowie. Sad. Classic. Black and white. Traditional. Rules. Controversial. Opinion. Can you start by telling me when you realised that film was more than just something you enjoy in an evening watching a DVD and when it was something you'd be like, I want to make these? I think there was never really a individual specific moment where that happened. It was more of a kind of 11 years old when my dad bought me my first video camera. It was a handy cam with a massive zoom on it. It was great. And um, I think in just experimenting with that, I slowly made little snippets of things as I was watching and enjoying films. And it just got to the point where the passion grew in the in the, uh, the passion grew at the same rate that the consumption grew, and so they were kind of married together. I think it's a nice idea to believe that creative people have that definitive moment where they wake up one day and it's like, Mum, Dad, I'm a painter. But um, in reality, I think the realisation is much more candid. Yeah, no, I don't think there was any specific epiphany moment um, I always really liked films. I remember distinctly one time thinking, oh, I'm actually committing to this. That was, I think, the closest I had when I was about 15 and 16 and, and looking into different film schools that I wanted to go to. Right well, did you have your family support and things like that? I did, a... yes. They were always very supportive. Uh, I think it was clear from the outset I wasn't, a, um, I wasn't going to follow a conventional path. You're always straight into the film thing. You never had a... Yeah. Change of heart, and I think it was always. I think that. I've had like fairly regular and procedural mental breakdowns where I absolutely want to go into something else, <laughs> but um, that's they're normally only ever episodes, yeah. and you uh, kind of get used to them. And, uh, but no, never, never an alternative. You've now had a few films that have been very well received, and you're working with big teams, and it feels does it is it starting to feel like. A career now? Very much so. I think when I started out, it was a singular project a year uh, in free time, and, and that was, you know, an appropriate workload and speed for the stage I was at. But now it's, you know, five or six different projects in a year, and that's going up, and it's, you know, it's full time now, and it's exciting. Um, but definitely there was a, there's a satisfaction about knowing and feeling like you're getting closer to a goal that you always dreamed of. Um, Do the awards mean a lot to you? 
Only in the sense that they potentially hold the keys to unlock the next milestone, a bigger project, a different cast member. Yeah. You know, it's 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 their potential ramifications for how it can advance your career. In terms of you know shiny things on a the shelf, they mean nothing. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not about that. But uh, being tapped or recognised for something is a great way to progress and open up mm. avenues. So how does the way you approach making a film now differ from something you were doing at university? I know a little bit more about what I'm doing now, um, which is good, but that's not to say that's an you know, appropriate level of knowledge for... I don't know. Um, I, when I was younger, found it very hard to be... to trim down my own work and to make objective decisions about the film... Uh, in on the whole, you know, be it in the edit room or the, you know, behind a laptop writing it, uh, you fell in love with uh, certain aspects, and I always found that very difficult to get rid of those. But you learn after a while to kill your darlings, as it's referred to, um, and that's certainly having that objectivity and that sort of it is a kind of bravery. It's the bravery to be like, right, well, I did really like that, but. I know in the back of my mind, and it's about kind of... Not getting too attached to your yeah, own work. Yeah, short-circuiting your subjective preference to basically be like, well, I am reading it, something's not quite right. Probably is that, let's just delete it. And uh, I think that's a, a lesson a lot of people go through. It's tricky at this age because, and this stage, you know, working on a lot of low-budget stuff, you shoot a scene, it doesn't work. Cutting it makes everybody quite upset and angry because it was so difficult to get it in the first place but you've kind of always got to focus on the best interests of the film I think You've done music videos as well as narrative stuff um, which do you which you think you get more from? I really like making music videos because of the turnaround of the project it's very easy to lose yourself in a film when you spend six months, eight months making it. And it can sometimes be quite draining and exhausting, but a music video is generally over within a month and a half from commission to release. Narrative is by far the most rewarding for me personally. It's the creation of worlds and the destruction therein, if you feel like it or yeah. not. You can be nice to your characters. Yeah. Um, generally not, but... <laughs> so could you tell me a little bit about Youth in Bed, your latest project? Youth in Bed follows three interconnecting stories about youth, love and pain from 1979 uh, all the way to 2002 that all remarkably take place on the same bed. And uh, it explores the kind of generational similarities and things like mental health, substance abuse, LGBTQ issues. Um, but it's this kind of big tapestry of, of, of well, youth, um, not to sound predictable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what inspired the idea? I'd been looking a lot at the photography and work of people like Nan Golden and Larry Clark, who have these exquisite photographs of, of young people in bed 
often nude, but I, I've, I've had a real fixation with how like tender and intimate that sort of photography was. And it was around the same time I had had this idea for, you know, a couple of different stories that could link together. And I got together with, with the film's producer, Molly Kayser Colvin, and we just started chatting and it formed really organically around, you know, I want to do something with beds. I want to do something where things, you know, maybe link together. Why don't we have this sort of meta-geographical object like a bed that links different, you know, stories uh, to the same concept? And that was it, I think, after we kind of workshopped the general premise of the film. We had a first script in about two weeks. Was do you write it all yourself, or is this I in did. collaboration? I, I wrote it all myself obviously Molly giving notes, and we had a, a first draft in, in two weeks. That was originally five stories, and we snipped it down to the three best ones. And even in the edit from what we shot, it, it got restructured and very jiggled around and, and everything. What's your favourite podcast? Do you listen to any good ones? I do. I... An easy one is the Christian Guru Murphy one. Was he good? I really enjoy his interview style. I just think that his interviewing style is too abrasive. I like WTF podcast, Mark. I really like his podcast. He, he's been through a lot of shit himself, and so when he gets people talking about potentially sensitive things, you know, he's really able to empathise and make him feel comfortable. Mm. Guru Murphy very much has that sort of television interviewer mindset, which is, you know, I think it puts people on the spot the fact that he has the same approach to every interview and he interviews such a broad spectrum of people. Mm. I think it's if true. you pamper to everyone's individual needs, you might find that you're not getting anything interesting. Absolutely, out. very true, very true. Empathise or pressurise, you know, what do you do? You know, Louis Theroux's obvious example to turn to is someone who does both, but an incredibly sophisticated and subtle way. And, and only he could do it because only he looks like him is as tall but as gentle, as geeky but also cool. And, you know, um, he's just got this strange palette of attributes which mean he's very unthreatening and able to get into these, you know. Documentaries are really interesting um, field in general. We talked earlier about, you know, music videos versus... Film. I actually made a documentary in my uh, second year at university. It was called Murderabilia, and it was all about the collector's market of the artifacts, artifacts and personal possessions of serial killers in jail. You know, uh, there are these. A lot of websites um, got banned back in two thousand and two under a law which stopped killers profiting off of their crimes. So a lot of the market moved underground to the dark web. There's a couple of ones you can get on Google, um, Serial Killers Inc. and stuff. You can buy a lock of Ted Bundy's hair from when he was shaved just before his electrocution. You can buy a pair of pants from a, you know, John Wayne Gacy or something. It's 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 mad. And uh, we we yeah. Molly, again, working with her as a producer, we, we stumbled across this subculture that we hadn't ever seen documented before. And 
I'd never even considered making a documentary. I love documentaries. I love watching them. I love, you know, um, I'd never even considered making one and I didn't have any idea of what I was doing. So I just wrote it like a film. I, I said, then we'll have this interview with this person and he'll give us that. And then we'll have this consultation with this psychiatrist and she'll give us that. And, you know, that was my paper edit before we, we started actually getting those interviews. And that was a massive lesson in improvisation, actually, is that you need a very bulletproof narrative before you start. But documentary is fantastic at making you adaptable, running with what you find. A lot of the people we interviewed were in the States, so it was sort of setting alarm at like 1am to get up and do an interview, which is a strange thing to do with a serial killer enthusiast makes you feel very vulnerable and alone in the world. <laughs> um, but I have to admit, I did feel a little bit like a, a, a sort of worn-down, uh, disheveled journalist in a David Fincher film, staring at my scruffy pad of notes at 1am about to talk to a Canadian doctor about the McDonald triad of uh, murderous tendencies exhibited in youth. And it was... Uh, it was a really cool sort of fancy dress part of my career where I got to sort of feel a little bit like a film character talking to all these serial killer experts. One of them got me. We, 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 we sent out a bunch of emails at the start to all these different vendors and collectors and enthusiasts and we got in touch with Charles Manson's art dealer and it was such a shame he didn't reply until after we'd finished the documentary, but he was uh, he was offering an interview with Charles, which would have been pretty cool to get just before he died last year. From a student film project as well, yeah. like for a student film We've, project. I don't, it was really difficult. I, I Obviously, the man is a psychopath and tried to incite a race war and is in no way... He's very fetishised in contemporary culture. As this, you know, He's got his music, he's got... This sort of, you know, Sid Vicious level of cult fandom around him. And when he died, I saw some people posting RIP, and you know, it's, it's not very sensitive when you consider the amount of pain and hurt he caused in his life. But um, I've lost my train of thought now. Again, this goes back to your, your angle that you take as a documentarian. We were, I mean, I love horror movies. I do have that obsession with true crime and things like that. And we very much angled it that we were, we didn't try to hide the fact we're film students. We, we, we used it, you know, horror film enthusiasts. We think this is so interesting. You know, you've got to be careful that you don't lie to anyone. You don't want to feel disingenuous. But I know that a lot of the people we interviewed were more disarmed when we were able to talk fluidly about you know films about perhaps these people's real life crimes and and clearly exhibited an interest in the uh the field that they were in i was having a conversation with someone recently who was under the impression that anyone who watches true crime documentaries should not do so because a lot of serial killers and people who commit a similar st uh, level of crime do it because they really like the idea of becoming infamous yeah and People who watch true crime and fetishize it, as you said, are effectively facilitating the incubation of a killer that's attracted to the idea of fame. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's making it possible for this to happen. You know, if no one listened to that, you know, no one watched these things, then yeah, the chance to become infamous wouldn't really exist anymore, would it? I think it's I, it's it's a tricky one. Uh, same thing with violence in video games and that terrible film that Daniel Radcliffe was in about the developer of Grand Theft Auto. Strange one. It, it was so bad though. That was I don't I don't I think he's a great actor when he's got an American accent. Swiss Army Man, Kill Your Darlings, amazing. The minute he switches to a British accent, his his performance authenticity just drops for me. And I don't know if that's the directors he's been working with or if that's just him. So you think his natural speaking voice makes him less convincing? Yes. Sorry, Daniel. <laughs> I'm, inc- <laughs> I'm inciting the world's most vanilla like this beef <laughs> dispute <laughs> how did I end up with Daniel Rugg oh the video game violence yeah it's to say uh, one of the points made in the murder of billiard doc was from we went to the Jack the Ripper Museum in Whitechapel and we got an interview with Sam their, their tour guide who's historian and author and he was saying that, you know, they've had a lot of hate at the museum. They've had bricks thrown through windows. A lot of people believe it to be a relic, sort of elongating the infamy of a man who was notorious for dismembering and desecrating the bodies of females in Victorian London. And there is no reason, you know, it's 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 glamorising to a certain degree the history of, the terrifying history but he just made the same point, you know, he said, look at the Imperial War Museum, look at all of the artefacts we have, which in some way commemorate something that was at the time very, and still now, you know, heinous acts of depravity and abhorrent immorality. And yet we, we, we all have a different tolerance to as to where we draw the line. How can people watch your films? Where can they find them? You can find my films on Vimeo and on my website. My website is www.edwardsorab.com. You can also find them on my Instagram. My Instagram is edward underscore Zorab. And you can find them on my Facebook page. Links to them all. They're all hosted on Vimeo. And... You can watch them there. And my music videos you can find on YouTube. If you just search my name, they'll pop up for you there. Thanks a lot for talking to me, Ed. You are welcome. I've had a great time. Don't thank me. I've done nothing for you. Yeah.